For Arizona Public Media, I'm Vanessa Barchfield, in for Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, we're going on a road trip. First, we'll visit Lake Havasu City to delve into the improbable tale of how the London Bridge ended up the landmark of this small town in the middle of the desert. Zach Ziegler will take us to Jerome to learn the history of how the mining outpost became an artist haven and tourist attraction. And then a tour through Nogales with two of the city's natives. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Now it's time to hit the road. Buckle up, cue the road trip music, and we're off. Our first destination is about a five-hour drive through Phoenix, like we're going to LA. Eventually, we exit I-10 and drive north through flat desert that looks like we're on the moon. And then the dirt turns redder, more Mars-like. Finally, stop the car, get out and stretch, and here we are in Lake Havasu City. Home of the London Bridge. Isn't that funny? That's Jan. My name is Jan Cassis. You hear my accent, right? I was born in the Netherlands, and I moved in 2003 to Lake Havasu City. Jan is the city's director of visitor services. Long title, short payment. <laughs> no, I'm fine. I'm fine with it. He has a big job in this tiny town of 50,000 people that gets 100,000 visitors each year. Many of them come for the same reason I did, to check up on this improbable story of the London Bridge. The bridge is the first attraction point. And then you see we have a wonderful town We have a wonderful lake. The bridge, the town, the lake, none of them would be here if it weren't for humans with wild and very big ideas. Let's back up, though, and first talk about the lake, which, of course, used to not be a lake at all and was just part of the Colorado River. The area was for many, many years the home of the Shimohabi Indians. And it was kind of sad because they lived on the banks of the river. That's where they grew their corn and everything. And, well, when the lake came, Uh, They had to move. The lake came when Parker Dam was completed in 1938. Fast forward a couple of decades. During World War II, a landing strip was built and pilots would come train here. Because they had to fight in the Sahara Desert in uh, Africa. So they came over here to do that. After the war, a few stayed and opened a boat rental company. Then in the 1950s, the area was discovered by a man named Robert McCulloch. Robert McCulloch is the chainsaw guy. If you talk to older Americans, I think almost every American who had more than one tree has had a McCulloch chainsaw. His chainsaw factory was located near the Los Angeles airport. And as LAX grew, he was pushed out. So he came over, he bought 26 square miles of land, and he said, I'm going to build here a town of about 70,000 people and bring my factory over here. Well, and that's what he did. First, though, he needed to attract people to this isolated spot in the middle of the desert. So uh, McCulloch bought, I think, 10 airplanes, and he invited people to come over. Free flight, free stay, free food. 
Who doesn't like that? Okay, McCulloch wasn't in the business of giving people free holidays. He wanted to sell them land. But first, he wined and dined them in this desert outpost. Um, I'm Luann Striley, and my husband Val. Oh, I'm Val Striley. S-T-R-I-Y. Luann and Val Striley came on one of those trips. It was snowing in their home state of Oregon on the day they boarded McCulloch's plane. A few hours later, they landed in Havasu. And it was 77 degrees and the sun shining. My husband said, we're moving here. Did you, you knew immediately? Oh, I knew immediately. I didn't want to live in that miserable weather anymore up in Oregon. They moved in 1969 when the town had a population of 800. So did this feel like the, the frontier? The end yeah. of the world. <laughs> No, Our family thought we were crazy. <laughs> you know, here's... Well, we were a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> we were a little bit crazy. You know? By the time the Strileys moved here, McCulloch had already realized that to get enough people here, he needed more than just jobs to make this a destination. He needed a landmark. And then he heard that London Bridge was for sale. And he thought, that is my thing. If I buy London Bridge, everybody will know about Lake Havasu City. So he bought London Bridge and um, he brought it over. It sounds simple, doesn't it? The bridge's granite pieces were numbered, taken apart, shipped through the Panama Canal to Long Beach, and then trucked to Lake Havasu. Val Striley was one of the 30 men who worked to reconstruct the bridge. I think it's the most interesting job I had in my life. It was two and a half years of intensive physical work in the grueling heat. They finished in 1971, and McCulloch unveiled the bridge with pomp and circumstance fit for a king. It was a big celebration, really big. Yeah, McCullough didn't spare any money at all. He flew all the food in. And you know, the bridge was all blocked off for the celebration. Never even been driven over yet. Right, it had red carpet all over it. All of this, the over-the-top celebration, the red carpet, the bridge, Jan says this was typical McCulloch. He always did something out of the ordinary. And a lot of people said, my God, how can you do to buy a bridge in England? What a nonsense. And then bring it to the desert where you don't need a bridge. But he got it because when London Bridge came over here, everybody knew about Lake Everest City. So now that we know the history, let's go check it out. We're now in the English village and we walk down to the bridge. There you see the bridge in all its glory with the British flags on it, of course, and the American flag. To the left, we see burgers by the bridge and there is an ice cream of shaved ice. And if you look to the right, there are all these boat rentals. This is my first time here, and I was expecting some sort of Las Vegas version of a London bridge. But this, it's the real deal. And I have to say it, it is definitely not falling down. The same cannot be said for the English village, a dilapidated little replica of an English village, complete with a mini Big Ben that chimes every 15 minutes. It's here that I run into Pia Paulson. We're from Jutland, the middle of Denmark, so to speak. She and her family are on a four-week road trip through the U.S. They came here to see the bridge. Yeah, it's nice, um, but it, 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 we've been to London, so we can see it. It's, it is true, and it's, uh, I mean, that's what it looks like. It's not the Tower Bridge, but it's one of the other ones. Regarding the Tower Bridge, there's a little rumor that McCulloch thought that's the one he was buying. Back in the visitor center, I asked Jan about it. No, no, no. I don't want to hear that question that he bought the wrong bridge. Don't tell me that one, because that is not true. That is made up by the, the British. 
I think they were a little ashamed that they bought that they sold such a wonderful bridge and brought it over. Actually, no one really knows the origins of that rumor, but the bridge has had a profound impact on Lake Havasu City. The bridge actually gives the whole town its identity. Paris has Eiffel Tower, Sydney has the Opera House, Pisa has the Leaning Tower, and we've got London Bridge. Right. We've got the best one, though. <laughs> we got the best antique out of all of them. <laughs> Back outside, I look up at the bridge one more time, at the alternating British and American flags waving in the wind, and I feel something I never have in London. Blistering 110-degree weather. Time to get back in the car and crank the AC. Next stop on our road trip is an old mining town turned arts community. No, not Bisbee. We're heading to Jerome, a small town located in the Black Hills of Yavapai County. Just like Bisbee, Jerome boomed during the golden age of mining in Arizona and went bust as copper prices dropped after World War II. Now, Zach Ziegler takes the wheel to bring us this story of the town's past and present. Jerome's history stretches back to when Arizona wasn't even a state. 1876 is when it was founded. 1899, there was a government put into effect. That's Jay Kinsella, general manager of the Jerome Historical Society. We're walking around the Historical Society's museum in Uptown. The museum occupies a building that was once the fashion saloon. It still sports a hammered tin ceiling. The town is named after Eugene Jerome, an early investor in the first copper company to set up in the area. Eugene Jerome was the grand, great-grandfather of Winston Churchill. That's just one of the many odd little facts that pop up in the town's history. It was once the third largest city in Arizona. The town's open pit mine was dug by the same steam shovel used to dig the Panama Canal before the tool was accidentally blown up. And it was home to many firsts in Arizona. We had the first J.C. Penney's in Arizona. We had the second J.C. Penney's in Arizona because the first one slid down the hill. Yeah, mining mishaps led to city blocks sliding down the hill the town is built on, but back to the first. We also had the very first Safeway pay and take it in the state. We had the first building west of the Mississippi that had central vacuum cleaner systems. Kinsella says subsurface mining left the ground underneath the town looking like Swiss cheese. Jerome's footprint is approximately one square mile. Underneath that one square mile is documented 136 miles of tunnels and shafts. The digging of those tunnels led to some booming times during the town's heyday. The highest population of Jerome was back in the 20s, early 20s. We had about 15,000 permanent residents and about 8,000 transient workers that were bouncing in between Jerome, Bisbee, Morency. Jerome's population was not much smaller than Phoenix at the time, and its population density was similar to modern-day Paris. Jerome's boom started to peter out in the 1940s. The end of World War II lowered the demand for copper, and new federal rules put a serious hurt on subsurface mining. Then, in the early 1950s, Phelps Dodge Mining Company began to shutter the mines. By 1953, the mines were shut down. In that period of time, the mining company was set up at the end of Main Street where the now fire station is with bulldozers and they were about ready to level the town because they didn't want the liability and the state highway still ran through it. A group of six residents formed the Jerome Historical Society to stop the bulldozers and save the town. Kinsella says they had one thought on their minds. At some point, 
somebody is going to want to come to Jerome for their history. The historical society held on to the buildings that make up Jerome, but the same can't be said for the population. There was still some holdouts here in Jerome, about 50 residents. Jerome was on the verge of being a ghost town. Then a whole new crowd moved in. The current mayor of Jerome was among them. Luke Courier had spent time in the Army before settling in San Francisco in the 60s. And I actually thought that Civil War was close at hand. And I had a child and a wife, and I thought this is the wrong place to be for that. He was looking for a place to get away from the tumult of the social revolution and street protests of the era. Then a good friend got a letter in which he was told about an interesting town on the road between Phoenix and Flagstaff. And he got this letter and said, hey, there's a house here, 12 rooms, two kitchens, six city lots, and a big workshop, 7000 bucks." The couriers and two other families bought the house, packed up, and headed for Jerome. They arrived in 1970. A couple hundred like-minded people had already settled into the community. There were 250 people living here at the time. It was just paradise. You said the war, and they said, what war? They didn't even pay any attention to it. Earlier arrivers had gotten the town declared a national historic district, giving it long-term protection. They then set about restoring the historic buildings that still stood. Every year or so, we, the town would reclaim a house. And then after a while, the, most of the empty ones were reclaimed. So then maybe they'd build one, one a year maybe. And then after a while, a couple every year. And then maybe we could put a shop in uptown. And as the town continued to develop, its population grew. The area began attracting artists and craftsmen. People thought of Jerome as an artist's haven, and that was okay with us because it brought some people and it brought more artists, and we were all happy and painting each other purple. He gets what makes the town appealing. It's a mix of proximity to your neighbor, but distance from the world. It was all laid out before the automobile, and I've been in Europe. I loved it over there with the little old towns. Jerome has a lot of that. Uh, once you get outside the core center, uh, you realize that this is still a very small little town with cobblestones and dirt streets. The town's unique look, preserved buildings, and the district recognition primed the town for its new moneymaker, according to the Jerome Historical Society's Jay Kinsella. Originally, our revenue was the mining, now it's tourism. It's a small town vibe with a walkable, historic, urban feel. It's all mom and pop. We don't have any franchises in this town. It's kind of a cool thing. We have no Starbucks, but we have killer coffee shops. And according to Mayor Courier, there are plenty of visitors. Several years ago, I heard we had 1.2 million people a year going through Jerome. That works out to around 3,300 tourists a day on average, about seven visitors for every resident. And on the day I was there, I was definitely not the only out-of-towner. Michael Jackson and Robert Keister came to town along with their wives. Jackson is from Oakvale, California. We just wanted to see what the town looked like and to come up for lunch, and our wives wanted to go shopping. He's in Arizona visiting Keister, who lives in the Phoenix area. Keister says the trip to Jerome is nothing new to him. Well, I've been here probably 10 or 15 times before. It's a cute little place, and... We like to come up here just to kill a day. Linda Ogle is on a trip that took her from her home in Oklahoma to Flagstaff. And I have a friend that hikes a lot in Sedona. And so he had said, well, go check out Jerome. It's a pretty cool little old mining town. And so here we are. But not everyone who comes to Jerome leaves. The town has added about 200 people in recent decades. 
One person who moved to Jerome since the town's revitalization is Sally Dreyer. She and her partner Mary Wills run the Nellie Bly too a kaleidoscope shop in Uptown Jerome. I have met Mary a few years prior. She had this wonderful little store in this funny little town hanging off the side of the mountain called Jerome. I started visiting from San Francisco, which is where I am from. Figured I could go from one city on a hill to another. She says it's easy to see why artists flock to the community. The views we look at every day here are such a treat. It has to be inspiring for artists and musicians, and we are loaded with, with that in this town. And while arts and an interesting vibe have kept the town going for years, it has found yet another draw in recent times. The Historical Society's Kinsella says the new industry that's calling the town home is winemaking. We're finding out that around Jerome here um, has the same pH content as the Beaujolais Valley of France, except it's virgin soil. And Dreyer says it's easy to see why people fall in love with Jerome, especially on this day. Good food, good bars, good people, beautiful views. I wish the people on the radio could see the views. We're bracing for a bit of a monsoon. Hopefully we'll get some rain, thunder, lightning today, bring up the excitement level a little bit. So come see us. That story was produced by Zach Ziegler. By the way, you can see the view Sally Dreyer was just talking about on our website. You'll find pictures from Jerome and the other stops on our road trip. Now we'll head south to Nogales with two of the city's natives. Children's book author Ronnie Ashford draws much of her inspiration from her hometown. Long before she was a writer, though, she was a teenager who fell in love. This is the story of her and Danny, the man who would eventually become her husband, of the town they grew up in and how it's changed in the decades since they left. I'd like to take you into Nogales, kind of like the first picture that people get off the freeway because you see the two Nogaleses. This is Danny Ashford. We're in his forerunner and have been driving for about 40 minutes south on I-19 when we reach the spot where Mexico's rolling hills first come into sight. You'll immediately notice that there's more color on, on one side of the border than, than the other. You see that hill over there? That's Mexico. Ronnie and I were brought up in two distinct places in Nogales, okay? You could say that I grew up in the one of the poorest areas of Nogales. And she lived in the place that was one of the better parts of Nogales, which kind of tells you, you know, you never know how things will turn out. <laughs> Danny grew up in a modest house a few feet from the border. That's the house I grew up which in. Which back in those days was just a flimsy fence. There was a hole in the fence where you could cross. Sometimes the donkeys, the cows from, from that side would cross over. As a matter of fact, we, we caught a donkey and we rode it for three days until the, the owner came and asked us to give it back to him. So this was a very porous fence. They say back in the day, you could walk across a small checkpoint at the border to buy tortillas and be back on the U.S. side in 15 minutes. Danny was a senior at Nogales High when he met Ronnie, a freshman. And so we had a really fun year. I was a majorette. Uh, baton twirler, you know, part of the high school band, and he was a great athlete, a football player and a basketball player. And Ronnie says it was a magical time to be in Nogales. And in those days, like the Cinco de Mayo, we would celebrate it on both sides of the border. 
and there were huge floats and then there was a princess from the Arizona side and a princess from the Mexico side. And her and Danny's story was like something out of the movies. It's like the sound of music. <laughs> you know, like we weren't really supposed to be seeing each other. Not that there was anything wrong with it, but I had been brought up with a message that I could be friends with the young men in, in the town, but that I was never to marry someone from here because if I married someone who was not Jewish, I would be disowned. I'm going to make a, a right-hand turn. Okay. I have a very distinct memory of walking with Ronnie right here, and I was holding her hand, and when we turned, she let go of my hand. And the reason she let go is because this store, instead of saying Victoria, it said Capens, and that was her family store. And Brackers and was another part of the family. She didn't want her family to see me holding hands because we were supposed to not be friendly in that way. Nogales was a small town, though, and the young lovers had a hard time keeping their secret under wraps. Ronnie was sent to California her sophomore year to finish high school out of town. Yeah, my dad told me, out of sight, out of mind. That was his saying at that time. But you guys managed to continue your Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we did it secretly. I was very lonely, and I would sometimes wake up like at 2 in the morning, just like, <laughs> feeling like I was in prison and missing Danny a lot. She says something inside of her told her to start writing. And I would write like love poems to him. And that's really what I think kept me sane. Today, Ronnie writes books based on her Jewish heritage and the Mexican culture she grew up near and was always drawn to. One of her books, My Nana's Remedies, is based on a composite of the older women who raised her, her grandma, her friend's moms, and the person we're going to see next. Maria. Maria is, I would say, one of the nanas that raised me. All right, now you're going to need your Spanish. <laughs> Maria's retired now and likes to talk about the old days. She knew that Ronnie and Danny had stayed together after she was sent away, but kept it a secret. In fact, Maria knew what all of Ronnie's siblings were up to. Today, Maria's okay sharing those stories. Sneak out the windows or the doors, and she didn't know. But I don't want to get anyone in trouble, so we'll skip ahead. Maria left her mark on Ronnie. Her love and her the influence that she had as well as my in-laws, they are definitely the foundation of my stories. And now it's time for our tour to move on. Okay, bye-bye. I love you. I love you. Now we're headed kind of like what used to be the outskirts of town. We're on the Patagonia Road and the city has thinned out into rural rolling hills. This is the area of town that Ronnie lived in, okay? And this is where I would turn. So you see that white house on the hill? She's pointing up to a mid-century modern ranch house. That's where I grew up from age 13 on. For me, it really didn't feel like my home. Except Maria's room. <laughs> So, Which is kind of funny. My it, parents it, hated that. 
When she was home on breaks from school, she was not supposed to be seeing Danny, but they had their ways. And I would get little pebbles and I would throw it in her window. <laughs> <laughs> my windows went way low and so I could open the window and hide the screen under my bed. And that's how we could see each other, you know? We drive through the neighborhood, which does feel very different to the one Danny grew up in. Look at this one over here. It looks like a castle. <laughs> really? Just another part of, of Nogales. As we go on, Ronnie tells me more of her and Danny's story. I had done well enough she was still in California senior her senior year and had been preparing herself for the day her family discovered their secret. And the day did come in February of my senior year. My dad paid me a surprise visit and... Um, Long story short, he knew. And as expected, cut Ronnie off. She finished high school and eventually ended up in Colorado, living with Danny and going to college. And within six months, we decided to get married and we finished our degrees there. And then we moved back to Nogales. How long have you been married now? 43 years. Is it 43 or 42? Um, let's see. <laughs> Ronnie says when they got married, her dad did try to accept Danny. But there was a lot of pressure around him. I don't know, it was really hard for him to change a lot. But now he has. Now he and Danny have a really sweet relationship. And he and I do too. Look at the view from here. We're at the, at the local church, right in the middle of town. And if you look that way, you can almost see my my barrio over there, you know, there's the fans, there's a little bit of Mexico, and this is the center, the center of Nogales right here. It's, I think it's beautiful. <laughs> Before we head back to Tucson, there's one more place Ronnie and Danny want to take me. This right in here is a Jewish cemetery. There are no upright stones, they're all flat, and they're in the grass. It's very manicured, it's very conservative. Then this here is the, the local cemetery. Mexicans are as creative as they want to. There's no limit in what you can do. You want a fence, you want a little house. Stuffed animals. And as you, you, as you can see, flowers. there's a diversity of, of graves and... I mean, if you look at both cemeteries, they sort of resemble where Danny's grew up and where I grew up, right? <laughs> I think sort of, you know, the, the atmosphere. And you know, I each one has its own beauty. I mean, that's that's what I find with our two cultures, with all cultures. Oh, you got all poetic. <laughs> well, that's why I'm a writer. <laughs> the sun is sinking, and it's time to head back home. Danny stops and takes one last look at the city of his childhood. All right, goodbye, Nogales, for today. For today. That story was produced by me, Vanessa Barchfield. And like any good road trip, this one has come to an end. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. The music is by Calexico. We also featured songs by Rat Tat Tat, Daft Punk, Jeremiah Clark, Penguin Cafe Orchestra, Yola Tango, Melodium, and Lord Huron. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. 
I'm producer and host Vanessa Barchfield, filling in this week for Mark McLemore.